Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi there and welcome to Stock Club, a podcast brought to you by My Wall Street. I'm James, and joining me on today's episode are Rory and Emmett from the My Wall Street Analyst teams. Today, we're talking about Jack Dorsey resigning from Twitter and his plans for Square with its new renaming to Block, the reasons why we never added NVIDIA to our shortlist, and two companies that we're researching at the moment. So guys, it's the most wonderful time of the year. I am, of course, talking about when the Spotify wrapped playlists have come out. Uh, Rory, are you brave enough to share with us what your most played songs or artists were? My most played, I can't remember what my most played song was. My most played artist for the first time since I can remember wasn't The War on Drugs, which has been my long time kind of favourite band that's currently making music. They were number two. My number one this year was The Beatles, Oh, which definitely kind of came in the second half of the year. I think I was getting kind of excited about this Peter Jackson documentary. And Well, yeah, I think we could do a whole podcast talking about that. I just started <laughs> watching that last night. Emmett, what about you? Was Queen your number one? Well, I'm sure it was. I don't use Spotify. I'm on Apple Music, but yeah, I'm Get you it. know it is. I know, but uh, you know, mm. Apple knows me better. And you and Luke I guess start your own podcast where you just talk about things that no one else is interested in. There's, there's such because Apple is so niche. I agree with you. It's real underground dungeons. <laughs> yeah, there's such uh, a, a schism in 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 my Wall Street between the people who use Spotify and Apple Music, and it, it always comes to a head this time of year. Well, here's a good one. My one of my friends, Manus, who's not never listens to the show, so um, he is still on Deezer. Wow! <laughs> and uh, he sent me his Deezer raft where it said, it just with image which said, "You're a Deezer trendsetter." <laughs> so <laughs> I like buckled over and half laughing at that. <laughs> Those guys are tied into Fitbit. I think um, my Fitbit keeps pushing Deezer at me, and I'm like, "What the hell is that?" So it's a music service. It. I mean. In, it's of sorts. There's music on it, I suppose. <laughs> Don't exactly know what service they provide, but <laughs> well, speaking of, like, I, I think it's so interesting, like the power of this Spotify rap promo. Like, there's, there's such a level of boasting within it as well. It's like, oh, look at the look at the bands I listen to. Look how much music I listen to. But of course, we've also got a nice bit of an ego boost too, because plenty of people shared their Spotify raps with us. Stock Club featured in in a good few top five podcasts. So I said I'd give it a shout out to a few of the people who shared it with us. So we had Anand, we've got Nick, we've got Tom, we've got Nile, we've got Hag, which I'm sure isn't his real name. We've got Morris, we've got Scott, Irla, Franco, and. And Josh, they've all shared that Stock Club was top of their Spotify podcast playlist. So if anybody what else... Even, what was even more interesting was the ones we beat. We beat some big names. <laughs> yeah. ahead of Professor Galloway. Yeah. Michael Barbaro. Yeah. Take that, Barbaro. <laughs> <laughs> okay, let's maybe get off our high horses a bit. But <laughs> speaking, actually, interesting enough, you mentioned Deezer there. And when we were researching the first story I want to talk about today... 
I completely forgot that Square had bought Tidal. Like, what another, like, music service that just nobody uses ever. But, of course, we're talking about Square, we want to talk about Jack Dorsey. And the big story this week is that Jack Dorsey has stepped down from his role as CEO of Twitter. In a post on, well, where else would he put it but Twitter, Dorsey announced that he was resigning from the company HealthFound and current company CTO Parikh Agarwal would take the top spot. I think it's interesting that he's taking the top spot because he seems to have worked his way up through the company from an engineer up to C-level suite and now finally the top job. Um, Twitter is one of the companies that you know we've talked about at my Wall Street since day dot. I you know you could probably argue that my Wall Street was nearly founded on Twitter through your own Twitter feed. But Jack Dorsey himself, he's one of the best known founder CEOs out there. But considering all the criticism he has attracted over the past few years, and I'm sure you're you're going to elaborate on some of that now. Do you think his removal is good or bad for the company as a whole? Have you seen his quarantine beard, guys? <laughs> I'm not allowed <laughs> to talk about beards. <laughs> <laughs> well, we are, we three are the bearded three, but like Jack's beard is a mix of horrible and impressive. It's, it's wizardly and it's crazy old manish. Like, ZZ I mean, top. the beard, it's ZZ top, but it's exactly ZZ top. So I, I kind of think they're already, it's, it's one nil to get him out. But anyway, <laughs> look, I'd like to, I'd like to do what I do. James, by starting with something that might appear off topic, but is aimed squarely at the ballpark of an answer. And specifically, I'd like to talk through Jack's career to date, because it's been quite a path, I have to say. So just to set the scene, Jack Dorsey is 45 years old. He was born in November 1976. And at the age of 15, he kicked off his tech career by writing a piece of software, dispatch software, which to this day, is still used by some taxi companies. So clearly the guy had the chops, as they say in the coding world, and and for software to be written, you know, at the age of 15 and, and used all these years later, whatever it is, 32 years later, is impressive on its own. But a couple of years later, after he wrote this dispatch software, he very briefly attended the Missouri University of Science and Technology, and then he packed that in and transferred over to NYU in New York, and then he decided college wasn't for him, which you often hear from these kind of, I suppose, tech visionaries. Then in 2000, Jack built a simple product prototype that let him update his friends on his life via BlackBerry and email messaging, which sounds very familiar, doesn't it, Mr. Zuckerberg? <laughs> anyway, before hitting a new dizzying career high, he decided to become a masseuse and got his masseur, is it masseur, masseuse license in about the year 2002, which was the same year that he got a job at a podcasting company called Odeo, where he met his future Twitter co-founders, Evan Williams and Biz Stone. And Odeo went out of business a couple of years later and 2006, I think. So Dorsey returned to that messaging idea he had and Twitter was born. And it's a very interesting story. There's a book about it. It's worth the read. So listen to this. Dorsey and his co-founders, Williams and Stone, bought the Twitter domain name for about $7,000. Now, I think JT and I paid $4,000 for mywallstreet.com and then another $4,000 for my Wall Street, the full spelling of street.com. And that in its own right is a really good story, which I'd love to share 
in time, but it's not for now and it's a good one. But he did well. I think he bought Twitter. Seven grand sounds like a deal. So in 2008, Williams had taken over as CEO and Dorsey transitioned to chairman of Twitter's board and true to form, Dorsey immediately started on something else. And at that time, he invested in a business that some of our listeners will recall, which was one of the, I suppose, the golden four of social networking, but just fell away. It was called Foursquare. Mm. Did either of you guys ever use Foursquare? No. 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 Mm. My friends and I used to check into pubs on Foursquare so the <laughs> others would know where we are. Um, and it was, it was handy. But more or less, at the same time that he put a big investment into Foursquare, Jack launched a payment startup called Square. And uh, as I'm sure we all know, that basically from that day to this, let small business owners accept credit card payments through a smartphone uh, attachment, kind of a dongle you plugged in. Uh, it went public, uh, Twitter went public rather, in November 2013 and within hours Dorsey was a billionaire and I just checked this morning, according to Bloomberg's billionaire index calculated, it has calculated his net worth at 12 Point three billion dollars. So the guy is comfortable. Yeah. So he's a he's a man of who wears very many different coats in his career, and he's best known for Twitter. And he is quirky. I mean, apart from the beard, he apparently only eats one meal a day, fasts all weekend, and he said that he fasts to the extent where he feels like he's hallucinating. And and when he said that. Uh, he got a lot of criticism at the time for normalizing eating disorders, which of course was a view that was going to prevail. Anyway, to the news at hand, Twitter has something like 200, 210 million daily users, which is minuscule beside Facebook's 2 billion. But it is essentially a platform for, you know, expressing yourself, news, politics, live events, whatever. Nonetheless, Dorsey is probably going all in with Square yeah. now, which owns, as as we know, the Cash App, a peer-to-peer payment app. Uh, a ca- the Cash App is a peer-to-peer payment app. I suppose you could think of PayPal's Venmo. And then it has expanded its e-commerce footprint when it bought Afterpay, which is an Australian company, one of these kind of buy-now, pay-later companies, and paid $29 billion for it. And then it also owns the web hosting service Weebly and the music streamer Tidal, as you mentioned, James. But I read a great piece in Quartz, this week that made the point that Twitter's financial success is mostly limited to its ability to sell digital ads, which is a market dominated by Google and Facebook for the most part, where Square, on the other hand, has its grip on the entire consumer payment system. It's entrenched in brick and mortar, e-commerce, peer-to-peer, and increasingly, and this is where I'm getting to the answer to the question you posed, increasingly in crypto. Yeah. And and although Twitter is building, you know, lots of new revenue streams and it seems to be doing it quite well, most especially through its kind of subscription, Square has, it's all in for lower risk, better return kind of business models. Yeah, and, and we'll talk about Square or Block as it's called now, we found out yesterday. And we'll talk about that in a moment because I think that's really interesting and it does seem like, you know, Dorsey's seen is more interested to be honest in block or square and I'll get your your opinion on that in a moment but I just want to go back because in his resignation letter a few days ago Dorsey said and I quote the idea of a company being founder led is limiting and he's worked hard to ensure that Twitter can break away from its founders now we often talk when we're looking for companies a founder led company is one of the big things we look for I, I believe even in our write up of Twitter it's one of the things we cited as the reason we like Twitter. How do you feel about that? How do you feel about him saying that the idea of a company being founder-led is limiting to the company? 
Well, Rory and I pick founder-led businesses not because we like the sound of it, but because it is a measured element of multi-year success. Doesn't mean that every founder-led business is a success, but the balance of probabilities is tilted in favour of those that are. But the simple fact of any founder-led business is it's a limited resource. That founder will eventually retire and leave the business. And, you know, you want to find one that is a visionary in leading that business for years and decades. But you, we all know that someday the Bill Gates will step down, yeah. whoever that Bill Gates is, and, and or Steve Jobs will, will pass away or whatever. So he's expedited that. And there's been, a, I, I think there's probably a few catalysts there. There's a mixture of him being pushed and there's a mixture of his new, I suppose, fascination, well, his fascination with crypto. So we prefer to see founder-led businesses. But the point he made about, what was it? What was the wording he used again, James? So he that said that, um, that founder-led companies are, yeah, the idea of a company, sorry, being founder-led could be limiting to the company. And he's worked yeah. hard to ensure that Twitter can break away from its founders. Now, I think the second part of that point is probably right because it seems he had so little interest in Twitter that it didn't. It, it could depend on its founder. There is a truth in that. I mean, I tell you where I can relate to that as a founder of my Wall Street because sometimes I wonder, am I in the way? Uh, please don't, <laughs> don't say anything, guys. But I know, like, and I'm very conscious of that uh, as, a, as a founder. And I think when you look at a business that grows to the level of Twitter, and, and, you know, no matter what role you're in as a founder, if you're actively working on the business, the weight of your word is, is yeah. heavy. And, and I do understand that. But I somehow think that the real reason he's leaving is less to do with what he said and more to do with what what is clear as his passion, you know? Yeah, absolutely. I think it's worth pointing out as well that you, you mentioned, you know, Facebook and Twitter. I think they were two of the kind of, well, for in, in my lifetime, I they were the two big first social media companies and they also went public around the same time. But Facebook is currently almost 25 times the valuation of Twitter. Now, that's nothing to say of Twitter's cultural impact because I think arguably they have similar cultural impacts. But I think it, it, it's a massive, there's a massive gap there in terms of valuation and, and reach globally between Facebook and Twitter. Let's move on mm. then to, I suppose, what Jack Dorsey seems more interested in, which is Square. We found out this week that, you know, he's already changed the name of Square to Block. So he's wasting no time and really getting stuck in there. Rory, let's go to this. Do you, do you think it's true? Do you think that Dorsey has, you know, over the past couple of years, been more interested in what's going on over at Square than Twitter? No, I actually don't. Okay. Uh, like I, I mean, I don't, I've never met the guy. Uh, I, don't, I can't see inside his, his brain or what he's thinking, but I, I kind of reject that premise. I actually think... You know, it's even possible that he cares more about Twitter than he does about Square. Although that's kind of glossing over what I think is kind of his true interest right now, which is the idea of decentralization, <laughs> which is very much within the rails of both those companies. I think when you people make make that comparison or that or that thought that he cares more about Square than Twitter, that's very much taking a what I think is a kind of narrow viewpoint of it, which is you look at Twitter's stock price appreciation over the past couple of years and you look at Square's stock price appreciation over the last couple of years and one's gone up a lot more than the other. So you say, oh, well, he's a better CEO of one company than he is of the other. I think, first of all, you have to look back on what, on where, sorry, Jack arrived in terms of his tenures at Twitter, you know, certainly during his first spell. He was a pretty young guy. He was thrust quite rapidly into the limelight as this kind of wonderkind who was kind of a peer to Mark Zuckerberg. And we know in those early days, there was a lot of questions about his commitment to the business. Um, there's a famous story of him and Ev Williams having a fight about him get, becoming a fashion designer. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Ev Williams was like, you can either go be a dressmaker or you can be CEO of Twitter. Pick now. <laughs> After he was removed by, as removed as CEO from the company, as Emmett said, you know, Ev took over for a few years and then Dick Costello came in. And while, while Costello did quite a lot of good things for the business, you know, he, he certainly brought 
more professional air to the executive suite. He brought in Adam Bain from the NFL, brought in revenue streams, and, and you know eventually took the company public. A lot of a lot of mistakes happened around that time as well. I think you know it's easy to look back in in retrospect, but you know there was a lot of failed acquisitions. There was a lot of kind of bizarre product developments, and probably the most important thing what happened was they shut out third party developers. So when so when Jack came back a couple of years later, when he what he what he found was this kind of hodgepodge of a business with no real clear strategy to speak of. And importantly, no, like no. First of all, no self-service advertising product, which is which is which is what all those other digital ad businesses really been built on, and so the company was really completely reliant on brand advertising. Yeah, and I th- I really think a lot of what Jack had to do, what he was forced to do over the next couple of years, was actually slow the company down. And I know that sounds counterintuitive. But it was going too fast that got them in the problem in the first place. And admittedly, they were trying kind of new things. When he first came in, that didn't work. There was this idea of Twitter as being kind of the second screen for a while. They pursued a lot of sports streaming deals, which never really panned out. But what you saw, I think, in the last couple of years was actually Jack copying the playbook that he'd seen work so effectively at Square. So, you know, rewinding back to after he's fired, he... Look, look back at what Square was, right? Remember that this business started. It was shortly after Jack had been let go of Twitter. And it was a friend of his mother's, I believe, who made glassware products. And he'd missed out on a sale because a woman came in wanting to buy something and she didn't have cash and he had no ability to take card. So from this idea, he called Jack. He was like, I hear your son does something with IT. Yes, <laughs> I'm sure it wasn't that. Probably being very reductive there. But essentially kind of pitched this idea of utilizing a smartphone to become a reader. That's how that business started. Now, from there, you have a company, right, which has a peer-to-peer payments app with over 70 million transacting users. It has a a suite of products that uh, service small business owners and empower entrepreneurs, including a lending arm. It's got a bank charter. It's begun stock trading. It's begun crypto trading. It's getting into buy now, pay later. Um, Although I heard that vote was rescheduled today, the one for Afterpay shareholders, but we'll see how that goes. It's got a music streaming service, for better or worse. We'll see how that works out. And they have now a new crypto-focused business unit, which is called TBD, which is very Dorsey-esque, I have to say, tongue-in-cheek. That all was built upon a very simple idea within Square, right? Or, well, three simple ideas, I suppose. And if you want to read more about this, Packy McCormick from the Not Boring blog is a really good breakdown of how this all came about. But the idea was to create a product that was free and easy to use. And you can look at this from both the Square product itself and the Cash App product, then target an underserved customer base and layer on adjacent services. That's how they built Square. And Jack came back to Twitter having seen what was happening in Square and how it was working. So maybe this was that was his kind of, you know, yeah. his moment of learning how to run a business effectively. Yeah. But if you look back over the last couple of months, even especially since from the end from the analyst day, they were out to create a product that was free and easy to use. Twitter has always been free. They're going to keep it free for the most part. Easy to use. We're not so sure. They've lost an awful lot of people through from the top of the funnel to the bottom of the funnel. Targeting an underserved customer base. This is the one I think took the company the longest time to figure out. Who was this underserved customer base? And I think now the company has realized that it's content creators and specifically content creators for written content or for or for podcasts in particular. And finally, the idea is to layer in adjacent services, which is what is happening right now when you look at review, when you look at spaces, when you look at the, the new super follow. So the, he was playing out the playbook exactly as it worked for Square. And it just got to the point where, you know, there was certain things that were going really well. I mean, if you look back over the last, well, is it kind of seven months, monetizable daily active users are up from 166 million to 211 million. 
the trailing 12 month revenue has gone from 3.5 to 4.8 billion. The problem I think was that the company was still hamstrung by this whole digital ad share yeah. thing that they just could never really crack. And it, the pandemic was a big issue. Twitter, most, or well, Facebook in particular, Instagram, Snap to a certain extent, they rely on what's called direct response advertising, which is essentially you see something, you like it, you click on it, you buy it. It's, you know, get them, advertise to them, get a reaction. This is really where the growth happened over the last year, 18 months, particularly during the pandemic, right? So we saw the rise of e-commerce, people were stuck at home, more money on their hands. Oh, there's some thing I never even thought I wanted. Yeah, click, buy, it's at my house. Twitter never managed to build out a good direct response advertising business. And the reasons were kind of intrinsic to its whole business. For one, it just doesn't have the scale of other social networks and it has relatively little information about its users. If you would compare that to something like Facebook, for example. Secondly, Twitter users are kind of information junkies. Like that's where you go to Twitter. You just want to kind yeah. of like get as much it's information the very, as possible. If something happens, it's the very first place I go to get news. Yeah, and when you're looking for that, you're not, you don't want to be advertised to. No. <laughs> you're just like, no, just give me what I want right now. Whereas when you're using things like Facebook, Instagram in particular, you're kind of just wasting time, aren't you? You're kind of, let's see what's happening. Let's see. It's, it's kind of a, a very mm. kind of passive thing that you're doing. And if you see something that sparks your interest, you might take an action. So what Twitter instead relies heavily on is brand advertising, which is what you see the most on Twitter. It's, it's that ad off a really good looking point of Guinness, which mentions that there's a match on next weekend. And it's, they're not expecting you to click on anything. I mean, you can click on it, but I don't even know what happens if you click on it. I've never done it myself. It's just reinforcing the brand in your brain. So whether you go down to the pub that weekend and the bartender asks what you have, you think, I'll have a Guinness. It's, it's back and, to the Mad Men type of advertising where they, they can't exactly track people, but they, they implant the seed in your mind. Pretty much, yeah. And like, but the problem you have in a pandemic is brand advertising is typically linked to events, which in a lockdown scenario there aren't many of. So this this was always going to be an issue that he had with yeah you know, whatever happened with Elliot Management. They had certain things they wanted to measure him on, and the the getting the digital ad share was going to be the most difficult one, and it was heightened by this just pandemic that just kept going on and on and on. Yeah. Just just to move on then, because I'm keen to just talk about Square then specifically. You know, obviously they changed their name to Block. No prizes for guessing what that's in reference to. How do you feel, Rory? Because Square is a company on the My Wall Street shortlist. How do you feel about, you know, Square doubling down on their blockchain, I suppose, ambitions, similar to Facebook doubling down on their metaverse ambitions? I think if you look at the uh, concepts behind Twitter and the concepts behind Square, it has always been about as I said earlier, decentralization. Now, in, in terms of Twitter, that's decentralization of where media comes from and, and where opinions are formed and where opinions are, are, are shared. The Obviously, Dorsey has always had an interest or long known had an interest in Bitcoin in particular. Didn't Never really kind of made much. His, kind of his Twitter more. bio is just says Bitcoin. <laughs> it's just mm. Bitcoin. Mm. So, I mean, I think this is just a natural evolution. I think Square is a decentral is, is the concept of decentralizing payments, you know, and and that all ties into to cryptocurrency. It ties into Bitcoin. I am not surprised at all. I, I think this was before we heard anything about him leaving Twitter or before the name change. We knew Square was going down this route in a big way. Mm. A few weeks ago, he said that Bitcoin will unite and deeply divide the country and eventually the world. And he said at the time that Bitcoin will become the single world currency in the next decade. So if you're looking for, you know, <laughs> that, that <laughs> a is, starter pack view 
from a world visionary or tech visionary, there's one right there. I mean, that is pretty. That is a big claim. Well, I was just thinking that he's he's done exactly that with Twitter: divide people and unite people massively across the country. I, I don't know if that's necessarily a good thing, but look, we'll keep a close eye on it anyway, and I'm sure we'll get back to that. But um, yeah, really, really interesting things going on. And there's a great podcast, by the way, just to, as a final that you can't you can't promo another Barbara. podcast, Rory. It's okay, we beat him on lots of uh, of raps. We'll throw him a bone, we'll throw him a bone. Yeah, but here you go, Barbaro. Uh, The the interview Michael Barbaro did with Dorsey on The Daily a couple of months ago, you'll have to search for it, Um, it was brilliant. It was a really interesting insight into how he viewed Twitter and and, and what he thought its its place was in the world and what he thought its impact was going forward. Yeah, just to go back to that quote you always hear on Twitter, I can't believe this website is free. So what is going on in My Wall Street at the minute? We have some new analysis coming up in the My Wall Street app, including some first look write-ups on two stocks previously pitched on this podcast, GitLab and Rent the Runway. We're also adding a brand new Stock of the Month pick on Monday for December And the exclusive Stock of the Month podcast will follow along a week after that So keep an eye out for that uh, Remember, if you're not part of my Wall Street community already You can check out all of this, plus our shortlist of market beating stocks By just following the link in the notes for today's show And we're not transitioning into blockchain anytime soon, I don't believe <laughs> So let's go to mailbag then So for this week's mailbag, we're going to take a question that came in from Stephen Via pod at mywallstreet.com So Stephen asks us, why NVIDIA has never been one of my Wall Street or Horizons picks. Emmett, I'm going to come to you first. NVIDIA is one of those stocks over the past five years or so has been on an incredible run. What stopped us from ever pulling the trigger on it? Yeah, I mean, that's my fault, I think, Stephen. I I personally have a checkered history of investing in silicon fabrication and chips and adjacent industries. That left me in a state of inaction, I suppose you could say. I was chatting with a wonderful, wonderful stock analyst called Beth Kindig about, I'd say about to about three months ago and and she's a tech analyst for the io fund and she writes for forbes and anyway we spent an hour or two just chatting on zoom and and she named it as her absolute favorite investment and and saying in her opinion it would be the first trillion dollar you know card and chip maker and since we spoke it's doubled and i think today it's something like an 800 billion dollar business so i think uh beth is right it's it's nearly at the trillion dollars and I guess, I guess I can only put my hands up and say I, I walked a kind of wide arc around it because I have, you know, clearly silicon chips age very, very quickly. But with just-in-time manufacturing, there was probably a concern I'd over-indexed and decided to pass on it far too many times. Yeah, well, I suppose you can't get them all either. Rory, what about you? Have you any, was it just that you kind of walked a circle around it as well? Emma told me not to do it. <laughs> <laughs> Threatened, I think, is the word. <laughs> no, not to put all the blame on him. I like a kind of similar position in terms of, like I'd never invested in, in uh, chip stocks before. It was a business that I looked at and kind of struggled to understand any kind of economic mode. I always have this issue where it's like, well, if it's just a bunch of smart guys creating something in one room, a bunch of smarter guys in another room can create it as well. I, I never really kind of understood where the companies, where the companies kind of, you know, what, what made them special versus, you know, an AMD or another, or another chip supplier. And that, that, that's a, a testament to my tech phobia, I suppose. Well, yeah, <laughs> I'm, I'm sure, I'm like... sure part of it comes down to circle of competence too. You know, that thing Warren Buffett talks about so frequently that, you know, if something is outside of, of an area where you have, you know, quite an in-depth knowledge in, it can lead to hesitancy. Yeah. And I mean, we did actually look at it quite closely during a run in like 2018. And I think there was a worry that 
there was if there was a crash in crypto for example which there was yeah. at the end of that year that there would be a big second secondary market and that would really hurt the revenue because people were selling the chips for basically what they paid for them and and, and that actually did happen you saw the stock take a big dive but that was the point where I should have you know gone okay the thesis played out now by but didn't so yeah buy the dip Rory May buy the dip <laughs> Cool. Well, I hope that answered your uh, question, Stephen. Um, don't ever listen to Emma Rory, <laughs> or please do. So let's move on then to the elevator pitch to finish out today's show. So easy enough elevator pitch today, guys. I just want you to pitch me a company you're researching at the moment. Uh, Emma, I'll come to you first. James, I am researching many companies, very many companies. So I could I could go with WeWork, which I'm looking at simply out of fascination, really. But I'll pass on that one for the minute. I'm going to go with one that very few people will have heard of called Camtech, ticker C-A-M-T. And what they do is they sell, they make and sell inspection equipment to players in the semiconductor industry ah. and it's a, <laughs> and it's an extremely specialized business that's increasing its market share as a result of that complexity and its technology and it's you know they, they, they say they have technological superiority and leadership but they seem to have the patents to back it up and as i said in a post on on horizons community recently it's almost certain that camtech has inspected components inside a device within a meter of where you're sitting so what it does basically is when fab plants fabrication plants are making chips or assemblies uh what camtech has is effectively a very sophisticated optical system that looks down on the on the wafers and on the assemblies and make sure they're perfect because if they're not they're not going to function correctly and the reason i like the business and the reason i'm getting warmer on it it has incredibly strong return on equity for over five years it's currently 25 percent. it has insider ownership at nearly 40 percent. it's still still quite a small company before the great meltdown that was yesterday <laughs> it was a two billion dollar <laughs> business its enterprise value you know it has about net of debt it's by 250 million in cash and i just think that this is an, a niche business that is positioned to grow very rapidly in the next few years as there are more and more what's known as semiconductor packages out there which are basically assemblies of of casings with all types of discrete semiconductor devices inside them it's a specialist business specialized business and i think it's positioned to grow quite a lot okay cool sounds interesting rory what about you what stock are you looking at at the moment yeah, i'm looking at a company that's has recently gone public. You wrote about it very well, James, a few months ago. Sorry, maybe? can you say that again? I didn't hear. I didn't hear you there. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's Duolingo. It's a company that has had a baptism of fire uh, since going a public business. The shares have been cut in half over the last few months, along with a lot of other growth businesses. I really love the product. I'm a user. I'm one of the five percent of its users who mm. pay for it. Me too. I use it every day. I think Same. it's still early days this company i think there's an awful lot of optionality in the business in terms of digital learning in terms of gamification of learning i like this idea of the english proficiency tests i think mm. that could be a great opportunity for them going forward more to the point i just love what this business does like language is so fundamental to everything we do it can be such a barrier 
for people all over the world. I was never very good at learning new languages when I was in school. They were the classes I, I dreaded. As I've gotten older, I've definitely seen the potential in learning a new language, not just for kind of the outward benefit of being able to say you have another language or um, even to be able to communicate with others, but it kind of, I think it actually kind of rewires your brains. It's, it's incredible what you can achieve spending just a couple of, you know, 10 minutes a day learning a new language. It's almost meditative. So yeah, it's a business I'm really interested in. I'm going to wait, obviously, until they've been in the markets a bit longer, but one I'm keeping an eye on closely. Yeah, fantastic company. I think management in that company as well are really, really inspiring. The the co-founder is, is a really yeah, inspiring he guy. Cre- he created Captcha. Yeah, that was it. Emmett's enemy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I was Click on like, every surely... picture with a traffic light and you're like, there, I've got them all. And then, yeah. no, you missed one. Now tell us, click on every hull of a boat. Yeah, and, and then, then you're, you're sweating profusely that you might, there might be like a tiny traffic cone in like the corner of one of those images. Yeah. But that's, sorry, I know this isn't the point of our podcast, but when it says click on a traffic light, do you click on a like the pole of the traffic light or the pacing <laughs> of the traffic do you do the whole thing or just the lights because I think that these are the small details that Capture has not designed into the process Rory this sounds to me like a robot getting confused with like human ambiguity <laughs> it's like does not compute <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't mind the photo ones as much as I like the, the letter ones. They're the worst. Like, the what scrambled letters, like, yeah. There's, how, could I, yeah. how could anyone know the difference between that one is? You need to bring it to your local pharmacist who's used to reading Doctor's Right. <laughs> oh, yeah, like that Curb Your Enthusiasm episode. That was <laughs> All right, let, let's get out of here before we start talking about Curb. Um, so that's it for today's show. Remember, if you have any questions you'd like us to answer, elevator pitches you'd like us to tackle, you know where to find us. That's on Twitter at MyWallStreetHQ. On TikTok, that's at MyWallStreet or simply just email us at pod at MyWallStreet.com. If you're enjoying the show, make sure to tell your friends about us and review us or leave a rating for us on whatever platform you listen to us on. From the three of us here today, thanks for joining us and we'll talk to you next week. <laughs> My business used to be weighed down by the complexities of in-person payments. Then, Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe came along and changed everything. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, I streamlined my payment process effortlessly. Now I can accept in-person, contactless payments right from my iPhone. No extra hardware required. What's truly remarkable is how I can cater to all of my customers' payment preferences. Whether they're using cards... Apple Pay, or other digital wallets, tap to pay on iPhone and Stripe ensure a smooth checkout experience every time. And it's not just me. Stripe helps businesses of all sizes, from local markets to global retailers, scale quickly and stay agile. To learn how tap to pay on iPhone and Stripe can help grow your revenue and reach, visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone.